Welcome to Sing, Coach, Conduct, the podcast for singers and singing teachers. Hello, singers and singing teachers. Welcome to another episode of Sing, Coach, Conduct. I'm your host, Megan Ferrison. What would happen if you were told that someday you may no longer be able to hear the music that has been at the center of your entire life? This is exactly what happened to my guest, Dexter Brigham. In this episode, Dexter tells the incredible story of his life, the good and the bad, his entrance into the American Boy Choir, his rebellious teenage years, and how his voice teacher and a heavy metal band saved him from himself. We talk shop about singing, opera, musical theater, and he opens up about his continual journey with Meniere's disease. You do not want to miss this episode. How did you decide you wanted to become a performer? I just love to sing. I used to love to sing when I was a little kid. And when I was eight years old, uh, I have a memory of... um, telling my dad like my dad was putting me to bed and I remember like grabbing him like by the shirt collar and I can I was I was really passionate about it and I told him like I really want to sing you know and um and so he got me uh he got me a season ticket to we had a in my hometown in Princeton Illinois we had this community the community concert series um it was something that used to be back in the 70s and 80s it was a series that was put together by Columbia artists where they would have these series of small concerts um, in just kind of small, in small communities across America. Uh, and it was in our high school auditorium. And so he had me, he gave me a season ticket to that when I was, when I was what, eight years old. <laughs> uh, and so we would go and we would see string quartets and we would see like small ballet companies. And, um, and when I was eight, the American boy choir, uh, came to town and, um, and so he took me to see it. Um, was your dad a musician? Uh, no, no, he's, he doesn't, He's not a musician at all. He used to, you know, he sang in a barbershop quartet when he was in high school, um, and he would sing in the church choir, but um, not really a musical guy. What about your mom? Um, uh, I don't know. I don't think she was terribly musical, musically inclined. Um, she and I got into a car accident when I was uh, when I was one, and she was 28, and she was killed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I uh, I didn't really get a chance to to learn what my my mother's musical inclinations were <laughs> was your dad told you about her uh oh my god so much i mean he he was ridiculously happily married for you know for three and a half years you know he was um <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so he he says all sorts of wonderful things about her he still talks you know, he still talks about her and he's he's always done he made a commitment really early on to um to never kind of burying those things and never not talking about her so he's always talked about her um a lot my entire life so I I do feel like I I know quite a bit about her but Mm -hmm. um but oddly enough her musical that would seem to tell me that maybe she wasn't all that into music wasn't a very huge part of her life I'll have to ask my I'll have to ask her her brother or sister my aunt and uncle and Mm. see see what they say (laughs) so your dad started taking you to these performances when you were a kid yeah yeah, I just go to these shows and I remember sitting in the in the uh, there was a, 
a string quartet. And I remember um, at first I was interested in taking violin because um, I remember sitting in the front row um, kind of watching them move their fingers. And I remember like kind of doing the fingering and stuff like on my dad's arm or something when we were in the concert. But it was when the boy choir came along that re- things really took off for me because during the concert, the conductor turned around and he said, we're always looking for boys to join the choir. So if you know anyone who's interested, please let me know after the show. And so I jabbed my dad in the in the ribs, and I said I told him I wanted to do that. Hmm. And so after the concert, he was the the conductor. His name was Mr. Litton. He he was cha- kind of greeting people in the lobby, and, mm-hmm. and someone tapped him on the shoulder and told him that I had wanted to sing for him. And and so he just immediately extricated himself from the from the <laughs> conversation, took me up onto the stage, and and uh, tested my ear, and um, and then. Uh, told me they'd be in touch and I got invited to go out to New Jersey the school the American Boy Choir was a boarding school in in New Jersey in Princeton New Jersey uh so I went out there from one Princeton to another Princeton um (laughs) I went out there and I spent three days out there just it's a trial week where you you kind of go and see if you like being at a east coast boarding school Mm -hmm. um and I did so when I was when I went into fifth grade I, I left home and I went and attended the American Boy Choir school for I ended up being there for two and a half years. Um, I toured with them um, all over the country, recorded a couple of albums, and um, got to sing in all sorts of wonderful places. I got to sing in Lincoln Center, and I got to sing under Zubin Mehta's baton with you know at the mm. with the New York Philharmonic, and mm-hmm. um, some really cool, really cool experiences. Yeah. So you basically lived with this group, did mm-hmm. you say, for two and a half years? Yeah. Oh, wow. Did you miss your family? I did, yeah. You know, every I think every kid, you know, goes through homesickness when you're when you're at a boarding school. But there was there was 52 kids in the school um, between fifth grade and eighth grade because they the school only went through eighth grade because it was a boy choir, and at about eighth grade is when all the boys' voices change. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and yeah, I was there for I was there for two and a half years, and it was a really it was really intense. Um, you know, we would you know, we'd have breakfast, and then we would have a like a like a ninety minute to two hour rehearsal in the morning, and then we would have our classes until the middle of the afternoon. And then we'd have a two and a half hour rehearsal in the evening. So I was singing from the time I was nine years on nine years old. I was singing around four hours a day, and then we were on tour for about six to seven weeks out of each school year. We had a we had a tour bus and. Um, we'd go around the country singing concerts. So by the time I came back to, to public school in the seventh grade, I was pretty far along as a as a musician. You know, I you know, I know it's it's been it's been kind of debunked these days, but I remember that when I first read um Malcolm Gladwell's book, uh, Outliers mm-hmm. and it talked about the rule of ten thousand, you know, it really resonated with me because I've always been a big proponent of making sure that everyone knows that I don't necessarily agree that there's much to do with talent. Because my own career, people have been calling me a talented singer from the time I was a kid, right? Mm-hmm. But I don't think it was that. I don't think I was any more talented or less talented than any other average kid my age. I just think that I was singing four hours a day all the way through fifth grade and sixth grade and seventh grade, you know? And mm-hmm. eventually, that adds up to something, you know? Yeah. Um, Walk me through what a typical day was like at the boarding school. Um, so it was, it was very posh. It was very like East coast private school. Like the kids from the boy choir school tended to be like, you know, East coast money. Like there was a lot of like Porsches, like, you know, kids coming to school and their parents dropping them off in Porsches. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, so like, and the kids who would, would go from the boy choir onto, to Exeter or Lawrenceville Academy or so it was a, I mean, it was very much like a, you know, 
posh, you know, East Coast. It was, and, you know, and I was this farm kid, you know, this, like, this <laughs> small town kid from the Midwest. And there was a lot of kids like me from there. You know, it was it was a it was a really eclectic mix, really from all over the world. Um, you know, we had kids there from from South Africa, from Haiti, um, from England. Um, you know, we had kids that had come to the school from everywhere to, to be a part of this, you know, kind of. You know, the American Boy Choir was kind of America's answer to the to the Vienna Boy Choir. <laughs> mm. So, yeah, so a day for us was, um, you know, so we all had to wear uniforms every single day. And, you know, we would eat in a collective dining hall. It was very kind of Harry Potter-like, where, <laughs> like, we had, a, we had a proctor and we had a headmaster. We had house parents um, who lived. They had a, a young couple that lived with us and took care of us, uh, kind of our took care of our private lives you know we had to stand whenever an adult um entered the room and we had to call them sir and ma'am yeah and so we would have our we'd have our morning rehearsal where we would do um we would do a mix of um you know constantly doing there was still the the school had two choirs we had the chamber choir and the concert choir um, the chamber choir was for the younger kids um and it was much more concentrated on uh, ear training sight singing learning um you know how to just how to sing in a choir, learning tempo and intonation, and how to you know stay in the same key for you know an entire piece. You know, just not something that a, is necessarily intuitive to a to an eight year old or a nine year old, mm-hmm. let, let alone a, a group of twenty of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and what would happen is then, as you would progress, they would just kind of keep an eye on each kid, and um, and one by one, you would just kind of be tapped to start attending rehearsals in the loggia, which is the, a different room in, in the building, which is where the concert choir would rehearse. Um, and then you would go in and you would start singing with the concert choir. And then uh, when tour would come out, they couldn't take all the kids on the, they couldn't take the entire concert choir on the tour. So you would you would wait for the list to go up. Um, it's kind of like uh, trying out for the team, you know, like you'd wait for the list to, ge- to be posted of who was going to go on the, you know, might be a, a tour of the West Coast or it might be uh, a tour of the Southwest or the Midwestern tour or, you know, we go out for three weeks and, and yeah, they would post the, like, you know, maybe like a, like a 24 person choir that would, that would go out for that. And uh, this is after you were tapped. I find that, I, that's so interesting. You're like singing and then someone comes up and taps you <coughs> and then you get to go into the, the next magical room. Yeah. You get, it's, yeah, it's about, I mean, it's, it's really about just about sifting the talent, you know, the kids reach a particular point and there's mm-hmm. a need in the choir for maybe more second sopranos or more first altos. And so you would get, yeah, you just go into the other room and you'd start singing more difficult rap and, you know, cause we would be singing, you know, we, we did an album with Jesse Norman, um, while I was, oh, while I was so there. Cool. Um, we did an album with, um, Michael W. Smith, um, mm-hmm. when I was there. We did the, uh, um, the 1980, what was it the 86, 88, the 1988 Olympics. Um, um, we did the, the true colors. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot of, some people remember it. The, the, the young boy singing, I see your true that was that was us that was the american boy choir. oh my gosh that's so cool yeah. <laughs> what was jesse norman like um wonderful she's so generous just just like the the most gracious you know just larger than life personality but so sweet and wonderful and i you know at the time i i was so surrounded by remarkable musicians that i i, I never stopped to think to, to even register the instrument that I was in the presence of mm-hmm. um, because she would, she would open her mouth and whisper 
you know, just this, she would just begin and this, this, this low rumble would come out and this, just this, just beautiful, just liquid sound would just envelop the entire room and just no effort on her part. And it just, it was everywhere. It would just, it was, it was like being submerged in red wine. Like it's the only way to really to describe it. She was part of a generation of singers that I don't know necessarily, I don't know exists anymore where complexity uh, and the celebration of the, um, of the uniqueness of each instrument was really appreciated. You know, I mean, kind of the, you know, she, she came from a, you know, the, that, that generation of, of singers um, that are, you know, similar to like Birgit Nielsen, you know, where you, you only, you, you had to be in the room to really be able to hear her. You could, her voice doesn't translate to recording because it was a, it's a full body experience. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So were you in the group that uh, recorded True Colors? <laughs> yes. That yeah, is, I was. That it was funny. And like, it's for being, it was f- so funny, like, because it was only years later um, when I would tell people about it that people would, um, that people would, that I realized that people knew what it was. Because mm-hmm. at the time, you know, as they, they brought us in one day and they gave us this little half sheet of paper that had this handwritten jingle like it was just written in mu- you know like just mm-hmm. just handwritten piece of sheet music on a ha- and they would just and they had each one of us sing it a bunch of times and uh and then they you know they took eight of us and they put us on a bus and we went to New York and we sat in a studio for a morning and we sang it over and over and over again and then we left and then we never thought anything about it and then it was only like when I was like I don't know 11 or 12 and I would mention that to people and everybody would be like oh my god the true colors commercial like everybody knew <laughs> what it was and I was like oh no well, maybe this is something I should mention to people more often this is <laughs> so at the time you didn't realize I mean this was just your life this is what you were doing you didn't realize um all the incredible experiences that you would look back on it and say you know I I met Jesse Norman. I oh gosh, no! Michael like I w. know, Smith. you know, I um, uh, one day we went into the into New York, uh, and we were supposed to sing with the New York Philharmonic, and we were singing the Chichester Psalms um, and the Kaddish, um, and we went in. So a, a, th- a few of us had been selected to possibly sing the the boy soprano solo in Chichester Psalms um, by by Bernstein, and so we went into this room and. We got taken into a small little side studio one by one, and we got to meet this, this very nice older guy um, who had each one of us kind of sing through it, and we got to hang with this very nice, you know, very nice, kind older gentleman. And it was only years later that I realized that I got to audition for, for Lenny Bernstein. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know, like, just, you know, you're a 10-year-old, 11-year-old kid. You're not thinking about who these folks are. You know, you're on stage at, you know, Avery Fisher Hall and Zubin Mehta is just conducting a rehearsal and you're there with everybody else who's in the rehearsal and then like, you're not thinking anything of it. It's, mm. it's only when you look back, you're like, oh my God, like how fortunate was I to, you know, at such a young age to be, to have gotten those kind of opportunities. It sounds like perhaps you, you also didn't realize it because these people, just from how you're describing it, they didn't act like they were who we all know them to be. It sounds like there's some humility in each of these people that they were just there. They were being themselves. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's like you said, I walk in, you know, here's this nice older gentleman that we're singing for. And it happens to be, you know, well, I, I never felt like there was never any pomp and circumstance to anything that we ever did. Right. We were just, you know, we were just kids. Um, actually one of my favorite, 
my okay this is my favorite uh like name dropping story so um <laughs> there's a really famous party that happened so um lady astor who is she was the heiress to the entire astor fortune you know the astors who went down on the titanic and mm. that they named mm-hmm. astoria queens after and you know like the astors and, and so lady astor had her I, be- I believe it was her 90th birthday uh, and we were hired to sing at her 90th birthday party. And so we went to her place up on Holly Hill to her estate. And we, you know, and we very much like we, our bus pulled up and we had to go in through like they had this like a side building off to the side where like the, the caterers were setting up stuff. And we had to go through in through another building and up and over like a walkway into the main house. And then uh, and Lady Astor was this very she was this very eccentric woman. She had a dog for every room in her house. Um, oh, you're kidding. Yeah, I'm not kidding. And we actually had a dog in our dressing room, and they had to come and take it away because we were all 10, and we couldn't possibly function with a dog in our dressing room. Like, we were, it was, yeah. Um, I have never heard of anything like that. Oh, yeah. And then and she had oil paintings of every single one of them. Like, her house was just wall-to-wall, floor-to-ceiling oil paintings of dogs. And um, and so then we, so then they walked us through the house, and we came down onto the stairs, like the main grand staircase, and we sang, like, I don't know, four or five numbers for her birthday party. And then we were asked to mingle. And so they just kind of, like, sent us out into the room to have, you know, various dignitaries, like, pat us on top of the heads and take pictures with us. And um, and I, I can look it up. I, I actually pulled it up and saved it. But I have a picture with me and two of my fellow choristers. Um, and I believe the picture is... Um, it's the, the whoever was the governor of New Jersey at the time, um, Malcolm Forbes and Donald Trump. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that's just crazy. Yeah. Oh, so you can we any any of us can find this picture or? Oh yeah, it's or, online. You know, a little bit of like I without with not too much searching, I found the picture and I I I, I did save it to my to my computer so that I have it just you know because whenever you want like you know it's just it's. It's just a fun, funny picture to have of like little eleven-year-old me and <laughs> Donald Trump. Yes, yes. Did you get to talk to him? Uh, I think so. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got a picture. I mean, I'm assuming that I said maybe said something to him, but I I don't have any memory of it. I mean, okay, I just wondered. That's a that's a really neat memory. So what happens? Um, what happens after boarding school? I got really angry. <laughs> I don't know whether it was maybe being away from being away from my family or or whatnot, but I started getting into a lot of fights. Um, and actually, I was so I was asked to leave the American Boy Choir School. I was I was kicked out um, for fighting for fighting with my roommates. Um, and I started uh, the next few years of my life were pretty rough. Um, so what was I, the turning point? I got to stop you real quick because what what happened? It, it didn't seem like it was always that way when you were in boarding school. So at some point this this anger started can you kind of pinpoint when that happened i i can't Mm. i don't my dad my dad felt that it was just my way like that i didn't know how to tell anybody that i wanted to come home Mm. and that that was how i got it done you know that that i was just lashing out because i missed my family that i didn't want to be there anymore um, and this is two and a half years in. Of, or <coughs> yeah, so this is in seventh grade. Yeah, okay. so I was, you know, 12, 12 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, also, it very just could have been I was 12. Right. 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 I was a 12-year-old boy, and I just had a lot of anger and had a lot of um, hormones, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you know, rushing through my, my veins. Um, <laughs> you know, so 12 was when I came home, and 
fell in with a pretty like rough group of friends and I got in trouble with the police for the first time when I was 12. And then uh, I got in trouble for the second time when I was 15. Um, so I was was uh, on probation twice before, like before I was halfway through my teens. <laughs> mm. um, and uh, so it was a, kind of a big wake up call. But when I was 15, so I, and, and so those were those were kind of really rough times. I mean, that we, I did a lot of a lot of things that is going to come in really handy um, once I had now that when, once my boys hit their teens, mm-hmm. um, I did a lot of things that are going to come in. You know, where my boys are not going to be able to put much over on me because I was doing a lot of stuff I shouldn't have been doing between mm-hmm. twelve and fifteen. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I had a good time, but um, <laughs> was not <laughs> not something you would recommend. No, 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 no. <laughs> See, my dad. So um, my dad uh, got divorced from my stepmother when um, when I was I think the divorce was finalized when I was thirteen. So it was just me and my dad through my teenage years and he and I were really close but he was a he was a, a driver up in Chicago so he worked he commuted two hours to work so he was gone you know from eight o'clock in the morning until nine o'clock at night and so mm. I got myself to work I got myself to school in the morning and I took my I took care of myself after school so I was, I was kind of on my own I was very much a latchkey kid mm. um you know during my teens but before things really got bad um so when I was 15 I met uh, a group of guys that asked me to be the lead singer of their heavy metal band Mm. Um, and, and at this point, this is like my family completely like threw up their hands, like, oh, no, cause I grew my hair long and I had this, like, le- I was wearing like a leather, you know, leather jacket and, you know, they were like, oh, we've, we've completely lost him now. But in reality, what happened was that instead of running around town, um, getting in trouble, I ended up spending my last three years of high school sitting in a basement with a bunch of really, really committed musicians working on something that was really important to us and growing as songwriters and um, as musicians. And really that's, it got me out of trouble. It was, it was the, I mean, it was the most intense kind of musical relationship that I don't think I've ever had in my life. It was, it was really wonderful. So, yep. I uh, was the heavy metal. I was the lead singer of rival kin <laughs> for three years. And our, our big claim to fame was that we could play we could play all of Poison's Open Up and Say Ah album, both sides. Yes. Oh, yeah. Both po- the A side and the B side of the album. <laughs> Half the people listening to this will not know what that means, but I don't care. <laughs> that is so awesome. So this thing that you would think, oh, no, this is going to get you in trouble and you're going to be in this band, you know, it actually ended up saving you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was absolutely great. I mean, it was yeah, that's these guys were were great you know they just wanted to they just want to play rock and roll and so we played we played the eighth grade dance we played proms we 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 put out a single called clover girl um and uh and we played on the local radio and i tell you like we go back i go back to town i'm not kidding like people ask us we played it like about we all we got the band back together for a concert like about i don't know six or seven years ago and like everybody wanted to hear it everyone wanted us to play oh play clover girl play clover girl like it was here 20 25 years later and like all the girls like all the girls that would show up to prom listen to us you know play clover girl like play clover girl and we did oh my gosh <laughs> you want to sing a little bit of clover girl uh i gotta know no. <laughs> i gotta know <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can sing it anymore. Uh-huh. <laughs> can um can I find it somewhere? I think I have we might have a recording. I think somebody took a video of the the recording that the, the performance that we did of it like 5 or 6 years ago. I mm. think when the, when we played it 
um, down in Princeton, uh, our keyboardist came back to town and she did a one woman show. Uh, and so at the end, it was kind of a biographical thing. And so at the point in the show when she talked about her time with, with the band, uh, we all came up on stage and we all, we played Clover Girl with her. Um, and so I think we got a recording of that if we don't have the original recording, which was like an awful, I mean, it was an awful recording that we literally made in the basement with like a four track with like a four track, you know, like a 1990s, like an early 1990s model four track recorder. Uh Like it was, you know, it was pretty basic. What was the influence for Clover Girl? I know we keep talking about this, but I have got to know, I've got it like, like who wrote it and why, why, why does the song exist? Um, well, it's, I wrote it. It has exactly four chords in it. Um, it's your. Uh, it's a wonderful little love song, and I, I have no idea who I actually wrote it about anymore. Mm. Some wonderful teen love crush experience that I had. Um. <laughs> oh, that's awesome! So okay, so you're in the band, and about how old are you at this time? Uh, so I was in the band from the time I was 15, like 15 through 18. Yeah. Okay, so through high school. Yeah, through the rest of high school. I, I think I joined the wrestling team when I was a freshman, uh, and then auditions for Oklahoma came up, and so I quit the wrestling team because so I could be in Oklahoma. <laughs> I feel like that sealed my fate, like right there. I was like, oh, like that, that tells you everything you need to know about me. Um, I got to play Ike Skidmore in that production of, of Oklahoma. I mean, the one thing that was bad about like, I was a terrible student in high school. Like I... I graduated high school. I think my GPA was like, I think I graduated the 2.19 GPA. I was a really awful student. And like right around my junior year, like late end of my junior year, I started to really get scared. I had this fear because because of the experience that I had had at the boy choir school and because I had come back to public school and then had gotten into so much trouble, I was worried that, that kind of I'd already peaked, you know, at I peaked at 12, you know, you know, and it's like, oh my God, I, I, I have terrible grades. I'm not very smart. You know, I'm just going to be, you know, I'm just going to stay in Princeton and I'm not going to be able to really pursue my dreams. And so I, I started getting worried about that. And so I took just on a whim, I took the ACT because um, I felt like I had to do it. And, and I lucked out. Um, I didn't, I don't remember really studying all that hard for it. Like, and I didn't get it. It wasn't like I, you know, I, I didn't get like a perfect score in the ACT. Like so many of my friends, I was friends with all the people. Of course, like all the band and theater people, right? They all got like 36s, 32s. Like everybody's like, you know, yeah, there was somebody that I knew who actually aced the ACT. Wow. But I didn't do that. So I, but I got, um, but I did get higher than the state average. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and there was a state law that said that if any anybody who's essentially higher than the state average automatically gets into state schools because that by default raises the state average mm-hmm. um and so once once i got that score i was like oh i can go to college like i'll mm-hmm. be able to go to college and that was a big that was a big sh- turning point for me like realizing that i was going to be able to to go to college and i applied to two colleges and um and i applied to the one that hired me on probation mm-hmm. and they, so bradley university said like that will take you but you know <laughs> maybe so well i've said maybe that's probably the one i should go to <laughs> they have higher standards yeah. <laughs> um, so then i went to college and uh and then i and i went and there was never really any question i was going as a music major and mm-hmm. i'd been a musician i mean as far back as i remember at this point i mean here i was i'm 17 and i'd already been a musician for more than half my life you know it'd been my entire basis of my my personal identity um so i went to went to bradley um as a vocal performance major and I went from a 2.19 GPA to a 4.0 GPA. <laughs> like when I went away to college, just the difference between you know high school and and just being able to study music all day every day. Mm. Yeah. 
the other thing that was a really big influence to me was when I was 15, my dad was worried about me. This is after I got in trouble with the law for the second time. He was really worried about me. And so he, he went in, he took a day off work and he went into the, he went into the office of the high school. The guy who had been the choir director for the last 20 years had just moved up into like a director of student activities position or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And he said, hey, my son is struggling. He needs something. He needs a voice teacher. He doesn't have a voice teacher. He needs something. And, um, and Mr. Crane picked up the phone. He said, I know a guy. Picked up the phone, talked for a couple of minutes, said, Jim will see him this weekend. And so that weekend, my dad took me down to, to, to meet Jim Parks, who ended up being my voice teacher from the time I was 15 to the time I was 23 when he passed away. Jim was my teacher. He was my mentor. He was my second father. Um, and, you know, my dad gave me life, but Jim gave me my life. Um, and, uh, and so I've always tried to honor Jim's memory um, by make, by trying to continue to pass on the the secrets of you know I feel like the best thing I can do to honor his memory is to be a stickler about um, pedagogy. <laughs> like yeah. I'm always like yeah I'm always you know I'll like I'll always have the argument about you know um, you know fixed dough over movable dough and I will always you know <laughs> and I will always always you know defend. Uh, you know, always, you know, be critical of, of bad pedagogy, <laughs> you know, um, the, the singing art form just doesn't have any guardrails. You know, anybody can hang out a shingle and start a voice studio and they do. Um, and so those of us who actually know what we're talking about, um, need to make sure that we're, um, you know, because there's no, there's no licensing for, for teaching vocal pedagogy. And there probably should be because, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of a lot of young singers get hurt in the name of wanting to be able to you know belt G's at the age of fourteen. You know? mm-hmm. yeah. Yes, yeah, you're so right. Now, um, I have a question about movable dough and fixed dough, <laughs> right? Because I will tell you that at this point, um, at least in the state of Michigan, but I, I think certainly beyond. Um, we're mostly in the movable dough camp now. This is kind of where music educators are. But you said that you're in the fixed. Is that correct? Oh no, no, I'm. I'm oh, you're in the movable. I'm in. I'm in movable. Dough. Okay, Please, movable. I thought you said that you were in fixed. I, dough. I, if I did, I, I misspoke. No, oh, we're okay, definitely okay, in movable. Because I was like, okay, now tell fixed me. dough. Fixed dough is just crazy talk. I, <laughs> that is just. I was like, so tell me more about that, Dexter, because I was really curious to know. Um, Good for you for being so polite having the enemy in your house and be like <laughs> you're like oh tell me more about that that crazy crazy thing that you're saying <laughs> well i mean there's a reason why at any given time something exists right i mean there fixed dough was there for a reason and there were reasons why people used it and there was an educator um, when i started teaching that he was fixed dough this is what you use and I'm sure you know he had his reasons for that so I really truly was curious especially the way you talk about Jim is that Jim right yeah, Jim Parks yeah the way you this the way you speak about Jim with such um reverence and love uh I was like I have to know but but now we're all on in the movable dough camp <laughs> we're so all we don't need to worry camp. about that because we all know how to we all know how to count and we all need we all know <laughs> our abcs so there's no reason to learn a bunch of nonsensical syllables oh uh, okay that's so funny yes I can, I can breathe again so I tell me more about Jim what uh what were like the top two or three lessons that that Jim taught you oh man Thank you for giving me the opportunity to say these things out loud. I have on my desk a piece of paper that he gave me 
uh, about three or four weeks before he died. And on it, it says, my health is at the moment up and down, but here's some things that you can work on in my absence. And it's a listing, it's a list of, of just pedagogical um, suggestions, you know, things like, um, you know, dropping the soft palate and um, making sure that the epigastrum is free and, and that we don't lock down the epigastrum when once, you know, understanding what the floor of support is using the intercostals um, and just the function of the intercostals and phonation. All of that doesn't, um, it's not very snappy. But the thing, his, his wonderful, really snappy phrase is remember, I think the heart and soul of bel canto, which is what comes after, is governed by what came before. Mm. I think that's the, the thing that, um, and make haste slowly. Those are his, probably his two witticisms that are eternally applicable. He meant them in terms of, in terms of, I mean, make haste slowly was all about working in the studio. You know, not rushing the body, allowing, allowing the musculature to catch up with your your musical mind. You know, and allowing you know you, you you learn something new, and then you you start using your musculature different, and then your body has to take six eight months to then grow into whatever that new thing is it's, there is no quick fix you don't just all of a sudden discover something and then all of a sudden your voice is better right it's just that's not how it works you start using the muscles in a different way and you work for months to do it once and then you manage to replicate that maybe maybe after five months you're doing it once every lesson and then you're doing it twice every lesson and over the course of a year or two years you get to the point that then finally you're doing it when you're conscious when you're thinking about it and then eventually it becomes you know it becomes habit after years and years of work you know and then once you've done that then the instrument itself has to when it doesn't have tension on a particular part of it it can begin to vibrate in new and different ways and the muscles can develop in new and different ways and then that changes you know all of the wonderful invisible things that happens in your you know in your nasopharynx and the voice changes and it evolves and you know, so a change that you you that you you made to your technique three years ago will pay dividends. You know, three years later, um, so you have to make haste slowly and see what those what those things are as, as how they bear fruit. You know, it's mm. it's pruning a you know it's pruning a bonsai tree. It's not you know taking your car to the mechanic. So he taught you a lot about patience. Yeah, I was a when I met him when I was 15 and I was a heavy metal singer going like, you know, like, like yeah, he had to be very patient with me. Um, but you know, at 21, I was, you know, I was a Heldon tenor, you know, I, I was this, you know, I, I had this huge instrument. I, it was so, I was so strong, you know, I could, I could force, I could force my bees when I needed to, I could just, I could just ratchet down and I could power through and I could sing anything. Um, but, when I wasn't doing that, I sang baritone lit because my voice was so heavy and it was so mm. big. It didn't move, right? Um, and so I ended up singing like my my very first few contracts. Once I started working as an opera singer, I was hired as a as a was, I was hired as a coloratura baritone because I had worked on working with Jim. I had gotten my voice to the point that I could move and the voice, so I could I could sing Dandini and I could sing um, all the I could sing I could sing all this wonderful baritone rep. But then I had this moment when the the artistic director of Sarasota Opera pulled me into his office and he he handed me. Alla paterno mano from um, from Verdi's Macbeth, and he said, 
yeah, sing this. He's just like, you know, total New Yorker. He's like, sing this. <laughs> and so we sing through Alla Paterno Mano, and he, and he like, I finished the song. And it's a big tenorari. It's, it's, um, a bang, uh, not bang, um, it's Malcolm, um, it's Malcolm who gets why am I, where's my Shakespeare? I'm, I'm so ashamed. But yeah, anyway, um, but uh, yeah, so, um, uh, it's the big tenor aria. So I, I finished the aria, and he just kind of like takes off his glasses and like kind of taps him on the piano. And he's like, Dexter, you're a tenor. You just don't have any high notes. He's like, I tell you what, <laughs> you go back to New York, get yourself a teacher, get your high notes. I'll put you on a contract. Mm. Or if you want, you could you could stay exactly as you are, and you'll have a very nice, you know, middle of the road career as a character baritone. Mm. Or you can get your high notes, and we'll actually do something together. And I was like, thank you, Victor Dorenzi. <laughs> like, and, and so I went back, and uh, and I got my high notes. <laughs> like, you know, like I just had to put in the work, and um, and I had to sort of realize that that I was a tenor. But you know, nobody, you know, it's one of the reasons that I ended up leaving. Um, it's one of the reasons I ended up leaving the opera world was that my voice was not able to be celebrated for what it was. I had to be pigeonholed into something. I had to be something that a 21-year-old or 23-year-old singer could be, right? Like mm-hmm. a 23-year-old singer can't be a young Wagnerian tenor. Mm-hmm. You have to be a coloratura baritone. Like you, or you, either that or you have to be singing Mozart, you know? But like me singing, like me singing Tamino is like weird. It <laughs> sounds like... I mean, it sounds like, you know, a Heldon tenor singing to me, though. No. <laughs> it sounds like, you know. I, I want to go back to where you said, I, I got my high notes, <laughs> okay? Can you can you go into that a little bit more in depth? Like, how did you um, how did you work towards that? Well, I think part of it was that I just reached my mid-20s. I stopped trying to sound like a tenor. Um, I, used to, I used to just, you know, crank my pharynx up super high trying to sound like a tenor you know always you know always trying to you know just trying to sound the way that everyone wanted me to sing you know like trying to have this really you know super kind of spinto you know mm-hmm. ring to it you know like wanting to be you know Pavarotti instead but, of just discovering your voice well I started listening to like tenors like James King or UC Bierling um hey you wanna come up hey Zorro <laughs> we have a kitty here um <laughs> Uh, so I, I started listening to singers that were like really great, either Puccini tenors or um, Heldon tenors, and re- and then also listening at that point, um, Domingo was starting to get older, and mm-hmm. he was starting to transition out of tenor roles and starting to do things like Queen of Spades, and um, he was singing, starting to sing some baritone roles, and um, and so I would um, I would listen to a lot of Domingo because I felt like he did such a wonderful job of taking of accepting his voice wherever it was mm-hmm. and so the moment came when Domingo stopped he you know he stopped singing C's he stopped singing B flats he just started singing baritone stay, roles stay towards his head when you pet him yeah. he gets very excited if you if you start touching the, the bottom half of him so as long as you just pet the top just he's, exist. he's head bopping the microphone here yes yes <laughs> uh so okay, so yes, please continue. So, um, so you're you're discovering your voice. You were listening to a lot of tenors and yeah. So I was listening to a lot more like heavier tenors, tenors mm-hmm. that you know when they're not singing high notes, they sound like baritones. Mm-hmm. And like I listen, you know, I listen, there's a beautiful recording of Domingo singing Una Fortiva Lagrima. Um, and it's like Una Fortiva, and they're like, oh, just down there, and it just sounds so rich and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I started giving myself permission to allow my voice to just kind of be what it was. Um, but it was around that time as well that that I 
realize that, um, that I didn't like working in opera very much. One of the things that I found, two things. One, that the business of opera or the, the, the creative art form of opera is in a crisis. Um, I, my, the, the easy punchline is to say that rather than being one of the creative arts, it's one of the recreative arts, is that they're always trying to, you know, every production of opera ever is trying to recapture some moment of grandeur that happened 100 years ago. Mm. Um, and, I mean, can you name me an opera that has been a hit um, at any point? Like, when's, like, what's the last new opera that came into the standard repertoire? I'm a Mall and the Night Visitors? Uh, I, oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, yeah, I was just thinking that any time recently that um, – uh, like you, let's say a university's put on, you know, an opera. Just because I have some some students or former students who are now in college, mm-hmm. they are always trying to modernize it now. They're trying to put a new spin on it. They're trying, like, um, so when you say new, it's not new. It's right. No, it's it's. I mean, it's the same rep. Like, yeah. The rep doesn't like opera mm-hmm. is not is not a forward thinking art form. Like, all you do is study old composers Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like there are no new composers there's nobody who just composes exclusively for opera they might write one and the met might do it once maybe twice you know maybe you see the macropolis case or of mice and men or you know um uh alban berg's got a couple of atonal operas that we see you know you have um votzek is you know you see pretty often but like no one outside of the opera circle has ever attended a performance of Wozzeck and most people haven't performed, haven't attended a performance of Wozzeck and enjoyed it because it's an atonal <laughs> opera. It's really, really hard on the ears, right? Like mm-hmm. so much about opera looks backwards and, and even, even how we sort the singers and how we promote talent within, within opera is, you know, you have to pay to audition. You have to, you have to match a particular type at a particular time at a particular age. And if you don't, you can't get work. The, the upshot of that is that, um, the American operatic kind of talent system puts out some of the best young sopranos, the y- best young coloratura sopranos, and the best young coloratura tenors in the world. You know, there's wonderful singers that are coming to the Met, but they all record very, very well because now it's a recording industry. But they're not, you know, but yeah, like just it's another person singing the same role that you saw somebody else sing. You're just comparing singers doing the same song. Like, what kind of art form is that when it's you're just plugging new singers into the same into the same 500 arias over and over? Like, oh, it's a new production of Traviata. It's a new production of La Boheme. It's a new production. I mean, like, just fill in the blank. It's, you know, oh, occasionally we'll dig up something and maybe we'll do, you know, yeah, we'll do Falstaff or we'll do, you know, something that's a little more obscure we'll do you know tales of hoffman or you know so i so and this is entirely my this is entirely my experience in my opinion i'm sure i would love to debate that you know the, the relative merits of opera but but i loved the art form like i loved the idea of the highest form of singing like singing like singing as athletics mm-hmm. like like opera singers can do superhuman feats that mm-hmm. the average person are not even capable of doing. And I, I just, I absolutely loved that. I love that pursuit of singing at its highest, at its highest levels. It's um, intended to be virtuosic. Yeah. To show 
the the um, the epitome of what a person is capable of yeah. doing with their voice. Right. So in yeah. many ways, opera is more of a sport than it is an op- than it is an art form. <laughs> um, but the thing that re- you know, but w- what I found was that within if you're gonna if you're gonna spend your life, you're gonna spend a life in the arts. You need to make sure that the art form that you're in, you don't just love the art the product you also have to really enjoy the process because mm. you spend most of your time in the process right you're not actually in performance very often mm-hmm. even less so in opera when you only per- even if you're performing a role you're only doing maybe two performances a week mm-hmm. um and i realized that in 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 the opera world i felt that the singers and the people that i was my my coworkers, i felt like the emphasis was they placed too much value on on the instrument Right, they valued people according to the quality of their instrument, not mm-hmm. according to who they were as a complete artist or as a person. Mm. You know, you judged people according to their instrument only, and I didn't like that. But I think in terms of the instrument, mm-hmm. Jesse Norman is a perfect example of what has changed. There aren't instruments like Jesse Norman singing in the opera world anymore because Jesse Norman's voice could not be captured in a recording studio. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was a three dimensional experience. Mm. That that had to be, it had to you had to be sitting in the third balcony of the Met. You listen to a Jesse Norman recording or a Birgit Nielsen recording, and it sounds very nice, and it's big and it's thick and it's complicated, like a Merlot, you know. Mm-hmm. But that's not that's not what the experience is, right? It's you know when you're when she opens her mouth and like just this sonic wave envelops your head in this sound cloud it's i mean it's a it's a truly unique experience it can't be replicated it, you, you just can't record it in a studio put it onto a cd and then it doesn't matter how good the stereo is you can't just turn up jesse norman mm. on a cd and expect to to have that that experience in real life um yeah so this is what um led you to musical theater then correct yeah yeah, yeah. you know because I, I started thinking like well i could you know the thing i loved about musical theater was it I remember I had this moment where I, I I watched a performance of gosh, what's his name I was I, I always blank on his name the guy who was on Law and Order um, he was he was the original El Gallo in the Fantastics uh, darn it I always I always forget his name and I love him to death but he was the original Julian Marsh in Forty Second Street oh I can't I'm just hoping it's gonna pop into my head but it's not going to I'm um, sure there are plenty of listeners that are like like saying it out you know right they're, they yell, they're yelling this, they're it, at the saying it which yeah. is great <laughs> Darn it. anyway um so i um i remember listening to him sing lullaby of broadway and he's not a uh he's not a great singer he's not a bad singer by any means he sings perfectly on pitch he's but he's he's an actor he's he's an actor and so and but he sings lullaby of broadway and he sells it so hard it's so and I remember watching that being like, if he can do that with the instrument that he has, mm-hmm. like, why do I turn my nose up at musical theater, right? What, the only standards of expression, of artistic expression, are the ones that I hold myself to. So I can take everything that I value about opera, about the standards of opera, about singing at very, very high levels. I just need to, trans- I just need to hold on to that and bring that with me over to over to musical theater mm-hmm. you know and so that's what i did i went from being you know like the an apprentice at a regional opera house you know making 100 bucks a week to all of a sudden being cast as a leading man on like on a national tour or something all of a sudden like the paychecks got like way 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 better as in opera i was like this heroic tenor um 
who, you know, like was my my voice didn't match my type and it was way too heavy for the literature I was going to singing. But you move over to musical theater and they have, they have a word for that. It's called baritoner. <laughs> <laughs> like it's a baritone who has his high notes. And I was like, oh, like, can you, like, and so all of a sudden, like, all of these, like, you know, I started getting all these, like, you know, cowboy leading men, right? I started doing Calamity Jane and Unsinkable Molly Brown and Oklahoma, like, all these things where I just got to play these, these, so I, all the, the, um, the Harvey Presnell and the Robert Goulet's and all those, you know, I started, you know, doing a ton of roles. Um, oh, uh, darn it. My names are like, just not with me today. Uh, Brian Stokes Mitchell. So I, like mm-hmm. Brian Stokes Mitchell was really big at that time. And my voice was very similar to his. So I started, you know, doing a lot of, um, a lot of the songs, a lot of the repertoire that Brian Stokes Mitchell sang. And I, I loved it. So it was, it was great. I was a baritoner. It was, um, and so then, and I, and then I started to see some, some really good success, you know, um, mm-hmm. getting work as a, as a leading man. So there were more options available. There's just like a, a wider spectrum of what's available to you. Oh yeah. And yeah. you were seen for who you were and what you were capable of doing instead of trying to fit into some specific category which there aren't as many categories that exist within opera as as they do with musical theater there's much more going on there right i felt like i was celebrated for what i brought to the table right Mm. like when i when i came into the studio when i went and came into a show i had a certain set of skills as my voice a certain set of skills as an actor a certain set of skills as a dancer or lack thereof um, and I was simply accepted, you know, people would find a particular role for me, like, oh, we'll, we'll put you into this role, and we'll embrace what's unique about you, and we'll let you make this role your own, mm. and I found that with everybody, right, like, in, you know, in musical theater, we have, there's such range, you know, of, of different types, and granted, I look back on it now, I, you, I look at it, and we can be, you know, people are, and even me now, are equally critical of the musical theater world for being limiting in terms of types, in terms of physical type, in terms of vocal type, in terms of gender, in terms of body shape. You know, we do such a terrible job in so many ways and times about um, re- representing the world as it actually is. Um, but <laughs> to be honest, compared to opera, I was like, I was like, this is the Wild West. This is fantastic. You know, like I felt, I felt so liberated. I mean, granted, let's be obvious, let's be honest. Like the reason that I felt so liberated is because I, I, I was, I had fallen into an area where my specific type as tall, baritone, white guy who looked, I looked like a leading man, and my voice matched my look, and so I started getting work. You know, like you know, but you know, within my own like little, from within my own little, my, my mid twenties selfish world, I felt like I had stepped into a much more kind of, uh, a wider, a kind of a wider expressive world for, Mm. for what I felt like I brought to the table. Tell me about some of the roles that you played because you landed some national tour stuff. Yeah. Um, so the first, uh, the first national tour that I ever got was the second national tour of, um, the Scarlet Pimpernel which was a, it's a Frank Wildhorn um, musical by the same guy who wrote um, Jekyll and Hyde. So it's this kind of, I mean, so Jekyll and Hyde is this gothic rock opera kind of show. And uh, Scarlet Pimpernel kind of follows up on that with this, it's supposed to be like a swashbuckling action adventure story. Scarlet Pimpernel is actually the it's like a proto Batman character. The the book that the, the of the Scarlet Pimpernel is it's about this um, this dandy this rich um, this rich English this member of the English aristocracy who pretends to be a dandy who's 
just he's just a fop who is a brainless fop but really him and all of his friends are on the weekends they're you know going into france and they're and they're fighting um the they're fighting with the french you know uh, with the you know and they're uh, helping people escape the um, the French Revolution, mm. um, and so they're like it's this kind of it's very much it's where kind of Batman comes from, and so I was one of the League men. Um, so you have I was the understudy for Percy. Percy is the the Scarlet Pimpernel, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so it's just kind of this action, this swashbuckling swashbuckling action adventure story. Um, and to be honest, it is a terrible show. <laughs> <laughs> like it's very it's a lot of fun uh, and some of the music is really fun but the book like the way that Frank Waldhorn writes his plays that he just kind of writes the score and he writes this really fun awesome score and then he like kind of goes around until he finds someone who will write a book for him and then they kind of write the book and the script and they kind of make it work with Pimpernel it kind of that happened multiple times. Like they opened on Broadway with one version of it and it kind of uh-huh. was with, with Douglas Sills in the lead role in, in this, in the title role. And, and it was kind of, and I think at the time it was, it was a very, it took itself very seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was this swashbuckling adventure and then they closed it and they reconfigured some of the things and they rewrote the script and they reopened it as like a tongue in cheek comedy where it was a little bit more self-aware mm-hmm. Um and then they closed it for that, and then they opened the tour. And so we got this, like, weird mishmash of all of those things, and so our show had no idea, like, what it wanted to be. Um, so we kind of played it for laughs, um, <laughs> possibly a bit too much. Oh. Um, and, you know, and so it was, it was an interesting tour. It was, it was my first time living on the road, and I met so many of my closest friends, um, you know, the guys, like, my my all three of my groomsmen um were were on the you know there was a lot of drama in the cast on the show and so the, the three of us or the four of us um me and my three friends we realized we kind of looked around at some point we realized that we kept eating lunch together over and over and over again with the same four same group the four of us mm-hmm. and and so we realized that we were just going to start hanging out together and so we all just became became lifelong friends and brothers <laughs> So you and Laura were dating at this time? Yep. Yeah. So uh, we had met uh, at a dinner theater in in Florida in uh, the previous, we'd met in in November of 2001. Um, I had been doing another Frank Wildhorn show called The Civil War. Uh, I'd been doing the regional premiere of that down at um, Broadway Palm Dinner Theater in Fort Myers, Florida. And Laura was there doing um, the show after mine. She was there for the Christmas show. Mm-hmm. And so we met, we had 10 days of changeover where she was rehearsing the next show and I was finishing up my show. And so we met and she gave me her number at the end of that 10 days. We spent two and a half months talking on the phone. And then I came, and then she did the show after that. And then I came back to do the show after hers. So we had another 10 days together. And we started dating during those 10 days. Mm-hmm. And then she went to a dinner theater out in Arizona <laughs> and we talked for another two and a half months. And then finally in the summer, we ended up, we both ended up back in New York uh, at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, there's this woman that I've been dating for like four or five months now. And I, I've only spent like 10 days with her total. Um, <laughs> but so then she must've been pretty special then. Yes. Yes, she was. So we, we spent that summer together in New York. Um, and, and I got the tour when I was on, when I was on Scarlet Pimpernel was when I decided I was going to propose to her. So um, I, we finished the Scarlet Pimpernel. I came home, and then the weekend after I got back from Scarlet Pimpernel, I just I couldn't hold it any longer, and I, I proposed to her. I asked her to marry me. Yeah. Ugh. 
That's awesome. <laughs> now you also were in Kiss Me Kate. Right? Yeah. So that was that was a year later. So um so we got engaged in uh, we got engaged in November of um in November of two thousand two and. We right around then was when we started our little theater company in our living room in New York, and um, so me and the three friends that, that I had made on the tour, and Laura, and a couple of other people, a guy that I was a music director that I knew from Sarasota Opera, and a friend of Laura's, we all started this little theater together, this little theater company, and we all started looking for a place that we could do shows um, when we were in between jobs, mm. um, and so we put that together and started kind of putting feelers out there. And so then by next, the next summer, or like that next spring, I must have gotten the show in the spring. Yeah, I got the show. I, I landed Kiss Me Kate in the spring. And we were in the middle of planning the wedding. And we decided, we, we went to Princeton. We took our, we found a, a little theater in my hometown in Princeton um, that would let us do a show, that would let us bring a show there. And so we, we got a group of like five people together. We each pitched in like 200 bucks each. And we did like a profit share where, you know, that covered our gas to drive to Princeton and we rehearsed a show. And like, we, I wrote this like terrible, terrible little like script that was just, you know, just chock full of all the bad vaudeville jokes I could come up with. And we did a review show. We tried to just wow them with our voices. I think it kind of worked. And, <laughs> and then we made enough money to like get ourselves back to New York, split it all up. And we had enough money, bought enough money to like, you know, buy a pizza. But while we were there, we met some people in town who invited us to start to start a theater festival at the same time that we were getting this idea starting to develop this idea of starting possibly starting our own theater company and having this summer theater festival in Princeton um, I landed Kiss Me Kate and that was my first lead um, on a national tour it was you know kind of um, I like to say that it was the title role because I was the me in Kiss Me Kate <laughs> um, but that so that started rehearsals in the fall of of 2003. Um, the one little hiccup in all of that was that you know so we started rehearsals in October and I got I had a wedding that I had to go to mm. in in November and so the tour actually gave me three days off. I had it written into my contract that I was allowed I was allowed three days off to fly back to New York and attend my own wedding. And actually they were really nice. I once we got into it That's and good. we realized that like that three days wasn't really going to be enough. They ended up giving me a fourth day because basically what we had to do is I had to fly to New York and then Laura and I had to go to city hall. We had to get our marriage license. Then you have to wait 24 hours before your marriage license comes into effect. And then we had the wedding. And then um, Laura uh, came back with me and for her honeymoon, she just came onto somebody else's tour. Like she came, uh, she came onto our tour bus and she lived with us on the tour bus for two weeks. Oh my gosh! <laughs> you know, and and she like and you know, she, and I'd be like, hey, come and see the show, and you know, please, please come see the show. I really want you to see the show. And she'd be like, of course, honey, but do I have to come like every night to watch you kiss somebody else? Mm. Like to watch you kiss like a pretty blonde girl, like uh-uh. you know, for like the fifth night in a row? Like mm. I was like, okay, that's fair. That's mm-hmm. totally fair. Um, <laughs> I actually I made it up to her like for our fifth anniversary. Um, we went to Ireland. I was like, if I if I can get like a real if I can get like a real honeymoon oh. in before the fifth anniversary, it still counts. So, um, but that is the one. If I could choose anywhere to go in the world, I would go to Ireland. Oh, it was great. Was we it? Did, yeah, we did a ten day driving tour. It was Amazing. fabulous. Just the two of us before we had kids. Yeah. Well, hey, in the next thirty years, when we save up to do it, I'll reach out to you and say, right. hey, okay. where do we go? <laughs> where do we go in Ireland? So you guys did get to actually have a real honeymoon eventually. We did. Together. Eventually, yeah. Where there I mean, wasn't we were... another woman you were kissing every night. No, no. 
Emily's a very, very nice lady. She still, she lived like, you know, um, she was a wonderful leading lady. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Kiss Me Kate is a masterpiece because the music is Cole Porter and all of the backstage scenes were written by Sam and Bella Spivak and they are wonderful farcers. You know, it's, it's fabulous backstage farce. And then the onstage parts are Shakespeare. And so you get to go on stage every single night. You're standing in front of a thousand or two thousand musical theater fans, and you're trying to tell them a funny musical theater story through Shakespearean verse. What an incredible challenge! Mm-hmm. What a wonderful way to spend nine months, hundreds of performances, and every night it never got old. It was, I mean, it took me. It was probably three months before I really understood that. So in Love was actually the hardest song in the show to sing. Where's the Life That Late I Led is awesome. You know, Where Thine That Special Face is a, so much fun to sing. You know, I've come to Why But Wealth Only and like these great, awesome numbers. But So in Love, the 11 o'clock number, is such a deceptively simple song. And it carries so much emotional weight in the play. And it took me forever to really be able to do the number justice the way that it should be done in the play. It's Kiss Me Kate is it really is a, a wonderful masterpiece and I could have done it for another for another nine months. Mm-hmm. Can't I can't say enough about Kiss Me Kate. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. <laughs> I just I love this the storytelling and I'm learning so much listening to you talk about these performers and these shows. And I think it's really great for our listeners, too, because anyone who's out there doing theater, I mean, now that we may actually get to do theater again, (laughs) right, that a lot of people are coming back, I think it's great to hear about. Um, Sometimes, uh, like Kiss Me, Kate, you know, you've heard about it for so long, but to hear someone talk about it the way that you're (coughs) talking about it, I, I feel like I would be like, oh, yeah, I'd go back and see it with a new, you know, through a, through a new exciting lens. So just thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you. The next part of this conversation is, is perhaps the most, the most difficult part, right? Yeah. Um, so tell us what you've been dealing with for, um, well, how many years has it been now? You have to help me out. 21, 20, 20 years. So ex- at exactly the same time that everything was going right in my life in the fall of 2001, the time that I, same time I met Laura, the same time that I met the guys who had become my closest friends. Um, we started our theater company when I started seeing success as a performer. At exactly the same time, um, I started having trouble with my hearing. Um, and at first I didn't know what it was. There were, I was preparing for, I think I was preparing for, to play Wild Bill Hickok in Calamity Jane. And I was sitting at my piano, my little electric piano in my apartment in, in Staten Island. And I remember I was playing my melody. I was practicing my melody. I was playing the melody. And I thought something was wrong with my piano because I would play the note and it would play the note and then it would shift. The tone would shift about a quarter tone. So I'd be like, "Ah, ah, ah," just a little tiny bit every time I would play it. And I thought something was wrong with the piano. Um, And then I started having these periods for like three or four days at a time when um i i couldn't i couldn't hear i couldn't hear very well i could you know things were very very muffled um and i couldn't it was hard for me to i I realized as time went on that um when i was singing 
I wasn't singing what I thought I was singing. Uh, for a few months, it worked out okay where I didn't really, the, these flare-ups didn't happen very often and I was able to manage them through diet. But what happened was there was a moment when I got cast as um, Johnny Brown and the unsinkable Molly Brown and I had a really bad flare-up and I was working at this dinner theater and I had to go on, I was doing nine performances a week and all of a sudden I would go out and I would sing the show and the audience wouldn't respond the way that they always responded. Um, and something was off. And, you know, yeah, I mean, different shows, different days, different audiences. Um, shows, different audiences respond different ways, but it got to be pretty consistent. I realized that I wasn't, I was singing out of tune. I wasn't singing on pitch. I was getting to my high note, and my high note was quarter tone off, or I don't know, I couldn't even hear it, really. I was, I thought I was singing a note that, it, but was coming out with something entirely different. Did someone tell you yeah. that? Because you were not perceiving it? Yeah. You, you perceived that something well, I, was I with the audience. Well, I kind of perceived it. Um, I kind of could I could kind of tell, but um, I did kind of have people tell me, no, that's that's not what it is, and I would try to record myself. It's so hard to try to figure this out, you know, you know, when you can't actually hear. <laughs> um, how did, how did someone approach you with that? Um, to be honest, they didn't. The theater just avoided the subject. They think their idea, the approach that they took was they would just kind of put their heads down and endure the rest of my contract. Needless to say, I never, <laughs> I never worked for them again. Um, they probably could have dealt with it a little bit better, maybe. And maybe I could have dealt with it a little better. I think I just, I didn't really, I, I tried to hide it. I felt so ashamed. I felt flawed. You know, like, the w this one thing that I'm supposed to be able to do and to do well. And at the time, I was getting paid to walk onto stage every single day and do it over and over and over again. And I was letting everybody down. And everybody was too nice to say something to me or, you know, and they, I'm sure they said things behind their, behind my back, but no one ever talked to me. And was, and so I just, I just kind of accepted the humiliation. Um, and actually this was before, this was before Kiss Me Kate. So I, I, I did, um, I managed to do both, both Pimpernel and The Rubber Bridegroom and Kiss Me Kate all while this was going on. I didn't have any major flare ups. They happened so intermittently um but i knew that it was coming and so um, i kind of leaned into this new company that we had created when we founded festival 56 and we had the first season of that i kind of stepped forward and really tried to take the take the reins of that company in terms of becoming the artistic director and getting into producing and doing more producing and directing and trying to have less of my my entire sense of self-worth be you know, tied up in, and my success as a performer, as an artist, being tied up in my instrument, because I knew that my, my hearing was, um, was not going to be consistent. So I, what ended up being is uh, I have something called Meniere's disease, um, and they don't know what causes it, and there is no cure, uh, and it causes um, tinnitus ringing in my ears, it causes feelings of fullness in the ears, causes uh, temporary uh, hearing loss, um, so it's cyclical, my hearing gets better, and then it gets worse, and it gets better, and it gets worse. But overall, there is a long-term degradation. Uh, my hearing is constantly getting worse. It also causes um, uh, periods of vertigo, um, so I get vertigo attacks every so often. The vertigo hadn't been, you know, for the first 
you know, 15, 17 years of, of living with this, the vertigo was never really much of an issue. I'd have one attack maybe every year and it wasn't too big of a deal. It's, it's gotten a lot worse in, in recent years. I would have attacks here and there, but I shifted my career away from performing after Kiss Me Kate. I became a producer. I started running Festival 56. I spent 12 years at the helm of, of Festival 56. And for the most part, my hearing didn't really factor into it anymore. It wasn't something I, I didn't. I intentionally shifted my life, um, and I could still sing. I could still perform. I did. I played Jesus and Jesus Christ Superstar in 2008. I did. Um, I did. Um, and you get your gun. You know, in 2011, I did Feltzig and Drowsy Chaperone. So I've done. You know, I've. I did The Pharaoh and Jesus Christ Superstar in 2013. And so I've, I continued to perform on a, on a pretty regular basis. I was able to sing, no problem, sing at cabarets and, and, and whatnot. And even when I came up here to Midland, I, I did a show in, in 2016. 2016, I think in February of 2016, was um, I did a concert with Jim Homeyer and Ann Russell Lutensky. And, um, and that concert ended up being my last time that I performed publicly because that was in February and a few months later something happened in the summer of 2016 and I hit a tipping point with my hearing and uh, it the degradation of my hearing accelerated very very quickly after 2016 and I've gone from being basically a hearing person who had some hearing loss and I wore a hearing aid in one ear and every so often I would have some trouble here and there. But for the most part, I'd go months and months and months. And I was basically, it was a fact about my life, um, but it wasn't, it wasn't really a major issue. But from 2016 forward, I have absolutely been a hearing disabled person. I, had to, I have had to you know, adjust my life accordingly. I, I wear two hearing aids now. I probably have... I don't know, 70% loss in one ear and maybe, you know, 40 or 50% loss in the other. And I've been, there, the periods when I'm able to listen to music um, have been few and far between. I can't, I can't really listen to music anymore. There was a night in early April, my grand, sorry, May, beginning of May of this year, I turned on, I realized I could hear okay, and so I turned on Pandora and I just let Pandora play all night. And I haven't been able to hear anything since. I haven't been able to listen to music since. Help us to understand what it's like when you're trying to listen to music. What do you, you, you just don't hear it or you perceive it in a certain way. Can you, can you describe it? People think that, people think of hearing loss as things sound more quiet. You're just kind of perpetually turning the volume down on something. And that's, it couldn't be farther from the truth you lose certain bandwidths, you lose certain pitches. Uh, so you might lose top part of your range, you might lose some of the bottom parts. You know, it's, it's unique to every single person and hearing aids are designed to kind of backfill that. You, you amplify just that portion of it or whatnot. But at some point, and I don't know if this is the same for, I mean, there's different types of hearing loss. There's um, hearing loss that comes from damage, you know, from uh, like repetitive stress damage, or just being around loud noise, machinery and stuff. Um, there's hearing loss that comes from old age. There's hearing loss that comes from um, different sicknesses or, you know, um, and hearing, and Meniere's is just a particular type of hearing loss. It tends to be different from age hearing loss. Age hearing loss tends to be higher frequencies, whereas Meniere's tends to be lower frequencies. So it's harder for me to hear men's voices. It's easier for me to hear and understand women's voices speaking than it is for men's. Okay. Um, but when I listen to music, 
I, for the most part, I, my brain doesn't process the pitch. So I can hear the pitch, but I can't tell what pitch it is and how it relates to other pitches. So I just hear noise. It kind of turns into just, just, just sounds like someone banging on a piano. It just, I can't make sense of it. As if I have somebody who's singing a clear melody, you know, I'll be able to discern the melody. I can figure out, I mean, a lot of times I can figure out what key we're in. And then I can anticipate, if I know the song, I can anticipate, I know in my head what it should be. And so when it happens that maybe it sounds a little different, but I can, in my head, I can be like, I know what that actually is, even though I'm not hearing it the right way. And it can help me, you know, just kind of be able to enjoy something. It's funny, I have actually started playing songs in my imagination now, because it's better there. Like I can like turn off the radio and I can just play something a song that I love start to finish in my head because my memory of it because I can't I don't have access to the real thing anymore and I don't know where it's going to end I don't know if I'll end up stone deaf it's entirely possible you know we're in my family we, we keep talking about that we're definitely feeling the pressure to learn ASL in case we need it feeling the need to learn how to lip read because lip reading is just so much easier in terms of surviving in a hearing world I wondered how much of that you're doing right now as we're sitting across from each other. Mm. I realized sometimes I was speaking, well, I realized way early on in the interview, I asked you to if you would sing something. <laughs> and now I'm feeling like, oh, yeah, okay, that makes, that makes <laughs> sense why that was. A- well, one of, the things that I'm, one of the things that I'm trying to do is I'm trying not to be ashamed of that I'm not, that I can't sing anymore. Right. Like I'm trying to like I just need to embrace the fact that I can't sing in tune and just be the dude who just proudly sings loudly and out of tune. And I don't don't need to apologize for the fact that this has happened to me. I don't need to feel bad about it. That's hard to do, you know, as a person whose vocation was singing. You know, I, one, one thing I do want to say, the thing that I tell myself every single day and the thing that I have learned it's very easy for me to get caught up in self-pity and to feel bad for myself. Because, let's face it, there is a unique cruelty to a singer and a musician losing their hearing. It's awful, and it's cruel, and I would not wish it on anyone. But I am not in pain. I have a wonderful family who loves me and who takes good care of me, and they're willing to adjust, and they're willing to make accommodations for me. I'm able, like, I've been able to figure everything out so far. And I look around me, and the thing that I have found to be true is that when I started looking beyond myself, I realized that everyone has their thing, right? Everybody. There are people who are living with fibromyalgia, with cancer, with depression, with anxiety, with a missing limb, with blindness. I mean, everybody. Everybody has a thing. Like, you just can't. This just happens to be mine. I got nothing to complain about, right? I am not. I am happy. I got my challenge. I got the thing that I got to figure out. And how awesome is it that I get to be like the super poetic, like former musician who lost his hearing and like that I have that wonderful, that that agonizingly, awesomely poetic thing that I get to, you know, I don't know. There you go. That's right. right. You can write a book. I write can. a book about it. It's so, it's so, it's so cruel and, and awful. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, I, I, so my question to you um, would be, has this forced you to see yourself as more than a musician? Because I think as a musician, so many people, I, well, the movie Soul, right? You've seen Soul, right? <coughs> Have you seen that movie? Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, it's like, um, 
that's we, we just see ourselves as that's what we are that's our label that's what we identify as and so having this happen to you has it forced you to see yourself as as much more than your vocation my hearing loss is responsible for the life that I have. If it hadn't been for my hearing loss, I don't know if we would have started the company. I don't know if I would have written the musical that I wrote, which then we did a production of at the first season of Festival 56. I don't know if I would have became a producer. I would not have gotten indirect. One of the things that I discovered when I became a producer is how much I enjoy finance, how much I enjoy business, the business of producing. I used to I used to have so many hangups as a young artist being like, oh, I have to be an artist. If I, you know, if you're an artist, you can't possibly love spreadsheets because spreadsheets mean math and math is not art. And therefore, like I used to have all these like weird things. The process of learning that I love producing and I love the that rather than just just enjoying being the person who is standing on stage, that I love the, the vast, complicated process of putting together a show and a season and a theater as a whole um, and just how people come together to create art and how different types of people work together in different ways and how money interacts with that and how sales and economy and marketing and all those things, how all those things come together to interact to create this like wonderfully complicated, weird little art form slash industry that we all live in. Like I love that and I would never have done it because I was so laser focused on being a singer you know, and then being a musical theater performer, I was so hyper-focused on what the craft was on stage, and I loved doing that, but I would have done that at the expense of the breadth and satisfaction of the career that I have now, mm. and so in many ways, I, you know, I'm grateful for th- that this thing has happened to me, because I've had a wonderful career because of it, not in spite of it. On the flip side, those were the easy years, I've lived for the I've lived for the twenty easy years of of my hearing loss, and um, right now I'm gearing myself up for the hard part, figuring out how to continue to be a theater artist as a a person who has a severe hearing impairment. How do I how do I run a theater? How do I direct theater? Can, is it possible for me to still direct musicals? How do I surround myself with music directors or stage managers or um, singers or choreographers, people who understand what I can't provide and are willing and able to help me um, to, to be my the ears that I can't be? It's really great for giving diction notes when you're a director. Being like, hey, if I can hear you, I promise you the audience can, can hear you. Um, <laughs> and but you, you just, um, you're just wrapping up a show that you directed, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, it's having its run right now. Yeah. Um, and so how did you manage that with the hearing loss? You know, I, I'm learning how to do it by doing it. I try to be upfront with my, with my cast and my, my music director. Trust in them to to not look down on me, to not think that they're being, I hope that they're not being shortchanged by the fact that I, that, that I have difficulty hearing. You talk about it almost like it's something that you deserve. It, it's very interesting when you say that they, they won't look down on me. You talk about shame. You've used that word a couple of times as almost as if, almost as if you had some control and I, and, and, can you help me to understand that a little bit more? I would say that shame is something that I fight a lot. The feeling of being damaged, of um, that I'm not qualified, that I don't have, that I literally don't have what it takes, you know, 
<laughs> it's the same fear we all fight as performers all the time. But you know, it's it's hard. What what tends to happen is you know because I'm a producer, I tend to be the one who's running the program. When you're the one running the program, you don't get a lot of reassurance. You know, down at the theater, for the most part, everyone's looking for assurance from me. They're not looking to give me assurance. You know, one of the th wonderful things about theater is that the people in the theater will support each other and they'll encourage each other and they'll tell them, you can do this, you are good enough, you, you should be here. And I do, <laughs> I wish I had more of that, you know, I, because, because I don't, you know, as, as a person who, when you're the person running the company, it's hard to go to someone and be like, hi, am I, <laughs> am I good enough to be here? Am I, am I still the artist that I would like to think that I am, even though, you know, I'm fighting through these things? Am I seeing what I think I'm seeing when I'm giving you these notes? Am I, you know, like, I just, you just keep fighting, right? You just get up every day and I'm committed to finding a way forward. The encouraging thing is, is that I feel like we've been successful so far that I can, I look at the shows that we've put up. Um, we've done two shows so far at Cornwall's Dinner Theater in my new position there. And I look at the, I look at the, the shows and I kind of stand back and, and also like listen to people talk about the shows, listen to the, the patrons feedback and um, the owners telling me what their experience is like and the actors. And the one thing that I have that helps is that I have hundreds and hundreds of shows in in my rearview mirror. So I know what a good show looks like, even if I can't hear it. <laughs> and to be honest, I know what good singing looks like, even when I can't hear it. I don't have to hear the exact pitch. I can, I know from watching someone sing and hearing what I can, I know whether or not, I, ca I can listen to an audition and I might not be able to, I can't even tell what key that they're in, but I know if it's a good audition or not because I've seen you know, 10,000 people audition, you know, like, um, so that's, that's helpful to be able to rely on just that, I don't know, that muscle memory, just having you know, a lot of years of watching people perform to rely on. You are such an incredible human being. And <laughs> I, I'm so grateful that you're sharing all of this. Um, I, you know, to be honest, I, I, <laughs> I don't get a chance to say these things out loud, like at all. <laughs> So it's really, um, thank you for giving me a chance to, I don't know, unload. <laughs> I am so honored to be sitting here with you. I mean, you just, you shared so many things. And Dexter, I am so thankful for how honest you are about when you were young and your struggles. And you're not trying to hide any of that. And and now that you're going through this, this um and I'll call it a terrible thing because it is, like you said, it's such ironic, like cruelty, right? It just feels so cruel, but you are taking it and you are still bringing so much joy into the world. And I know you're doing such great work. People who aren't suffering what you are suffering are not doing the things you're currently doing with what you're dealing with. For you to acknowledge that you wouldn't be a producer, you wouldn't be doing this. Think of the lives that you have changed through that and the empathy that you have because you have suffered and continue to. And I can see that you're taking that and you don't want to see other people suffer. You want to help them. 
And uh, who knows, maybe all of that would have happened. Maybe you'd be that same person, right, if this had never happened, but, but you're not looking at it that way. So I just want to thank you for everything that you're doing, and thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing this. Um, it has been an experience to listen to you. Um, thank you. Is there anything else that you would like to, to share? Well, let's just come back to the late, great Jim Parks. And remember to make haste slowly and what comes after is governed by what came before because I think that is a universally true thing in life. Thank you, Dexter. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Sing, Coach, Conduct. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the show by clicking the subscribe button.